Amen. It's wonderful to see our kids reciting scripture and worshiping the Lord. Amen. 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 Scripture tells us to train up a child in the way that they should go and they will not depart from it. And it's wonderful to see our kids worshiping the Lord. Well, I don't know if you've been watching the news, but unfortunately, this war between Russia and Ukraine is now into its second year. I'm also hearing that Russia is now mounting up an offense to take new ground. The United States has been providing Ukraine with weapons so that they can defend themselves. And that's important. The quality and the amount of protective gear and weaponry that we send Ukraine will have a difference in their success. I know a little bit about the importance of having the right equipment because I used to work for an organization called uh, um, uh, uh, um, Centerfac. Centerfac Manufacturing. It was a number of years ago. Um, and I remember working there manufacturing bulletproof vest. This was not an easy task. We had the sandblast cut and carve and weigh, and ultimately we would test these bulletproof vests, evaluating their durability. I remember one day we were working a half shift, and the director of the department called us out to go to this section of the warehouse where we thought we were going to a pep rally. When we got there, we were told to have a seat. The director then pulls out this projector and begins projecting this picture on the wall. The picture began to move, and we then recognized that we were looking at actual footage of a soldier that was in battle. See, the bulletproof vest that we were actually manufacturing would go to soldiers that were fighting in Iraq. And as we watched this film go, I saw this soldier that was huddled down behind this vehicle. He then begins to take two steps out. There was no sound to this video, but we could see this dust pop off of his chest. He then falls back behind the vehicle, and he's frozen for about a minute. He gets back up, and then he begins to take off to safety. The director then stops the video footage. He stands in front of us, and he said, if it was not for the bulletproof vest that this soldier had on, he would not have gotten back up. He then began to explain that those particular bulletproof vests that he was wearing likely came from us because this was a battalion that was located in a certain area where we were feeling kind of good at that point. We were feeling pride, uh, a sense of pride because we were the ones who sort of put this thing together. But then he began to explain that the quality that we have uh, been putting out, putting these bulletproof vests together, had diminished. And now the, the clients that would depend on us making these bulletproof vests were complaining. He explained that if we didn't fix our quality, ultimately our operation would be shut down. We all went back to work and we diligently tried to improve our quality. And unfortunately, I got a phone call about three months later. And the phone call was that this organization would need to be shut down. They were closing their doors because of lack of quality. 
and rightfully so. I say rightfully so because what we were doing really had an impact out on the battlefield. It was a matter of life and death. Whether we realize it or not, we are all in a spiritual battle. I think this pandemic that we went through sort of exposed the weaknesses of the churches. Lifeway Research reported that over 4,500 churches closed their doors permanently in 2019. And a number of churches continue to close their doors or they're either merging with other churches to, to, to still stay alive and survive. What's going on? What's happening? Now, I personally believe that many of these churches were already managing a decline before the pandemic even started. The pandemic just sort of sped up this process. Well, what were they lacking? Perhaps these churches were cutting corners, or maybe they didn't have the spiritual leadership necessary to maintain the spiritual integrity of what should have been going on in the church. But we have been in this series that we've entitled Next Level Leadership. And today we're going to learn that leaders have the responsibility to ensure the spiritual integrity of what goes on in the church. It's important that they make sure that everything that we're doing is according to the will of God. Truth is that we all have a proclivity to sort of drift away off course, but it takes good spiritual leadership to make sure that we're going in the direction that we're supposed to be going. I don't know about you, but I want to be at a church that's not just surviving, but be at a church that's thriving. And if that's going to happen, it's going to start with you. And so today I want to share with you a message that I've entitled Next Level Quality Control. Next Level Quality Control. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you, God. Thank you, God, for your word. God, we ask that you would help us now finish this series in the book of Nehemiah so that we might be equipped to be next level leaders so that we would be a church that's not just surviving, but a church that is thriving. God, we ask this in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to be in the final chapter of the book of Nehemiah. We are closing out this series this morning, and it sort of ends with a bang. For many of you that have been following along with us, you know that Nehemiah leaves Persia, and he goes to the city of Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. And based on the power of God and Nehemiah's leadership, we learned that last week that they were able to rebuild the walls within 52 days. In chapter 7 through 12, we then begin to see that the law of Moses is read aloud. It's embraced by the people. The people then confess and they recommit their commitment to obey the laws. Families then begin to move back into the city of Jerusalem. There's a great celebration, a feast. There's a worship service when they dedicate the walls to the Lord. Now, with all this happening, you want to say the end, right? It seems like this should be the end of the story. The credits should be rolling on the screen. Maybe the curtain comes down, the lights come back up. And you get up and walk out. But that's not what happens here at all. 
I kind of like it that it doesn't quite end the way we think it's supposed to end because it reminds us that this is an honest historical record of what took place back then. This is not some kind of cooked up story for our entertainment. This is God's written revelation of himself to mankind. And in this story, we begin to see that God remains faithful to his people in spite of people's unfaithfulness. And we see that in the text. So sometime after the wall was built, Nehemiah then returns back to the palace in Susa, and he begins to function in the capacity that he was already functioning before he became the governor in Jerusalem. He's working now as a cupbearer for King Artaxerxes. But a lot is going on back in Jerusalem in his absence. Let's take a look at the scripture, Nehemiah chapter 13. We're going to start at verse 6. While all of this was happening, I was not in Jerusalem because I had returned to King Artaxerxes of Babylon in the 32nd year of his reign. It was only later that I asked the king for a leave of absence so I could return to Jerusalem. Then I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done on behalf of Tobiah by providing him a room in the courts of God's house. So we know that Nehemiah had been gone from roughly 10 to 12 years. He's now living in the lap of luxury at the palace of Susa, and he's thinking about what had taken place. He's sort of reminiscing in the good old days, the time where he had this record-breaking triumph in rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. He's thinking about how he was able to get the people to recommit their desire to follow and obey the words of God. But now he musters up enough courage to make this life-threatening request. It's a life-threatening request because this could have easily been perceived as a lack of loyalty to the king. But King Artaxerxes grants his request and he makes his way back to the, the city of Jerusalem. This is his native homeland, and so they, he makes this trip 800 miles west back to the city. When he returns, he discovers that there has been a major spiritual decline. This lack of leadership has now fostered an environment where people were doing whatever they thought was right in their own eyes. And they have drifted far away from the words of God. Perhaps he was gone too long, but now he's back. And he would ensure that things would be different. Sort of leads us to our first point this morning. And that is next level leaders examine progress. Next level leaders examine progress. The former IBM CEO once said that people don't do what you expect, but they do what you inspect. You probably have heard that before. And that word inspect sounds a little bit heavy handed, but it's important that there is an evaluation process to go back and see how things are going. You do that so that perhaps you can reward success, but you might be able to do that to provide some coaching so that you can make sure people are staying on course. The spiritual leaders during that time refused to go back and inspect the progress. 
to see exactly what was going to inspect the decisions and the behaviors of the people. So Nehemiah gets in town, and the first place he goes is to the temple. He goes to the temple expecting to get his praise on, right? He gets to the temple and finds out that it has been converted to a person's apartment. Yeah, he's like, wait, what in the world is going on? See, inside the temple, they had these storage rooms that was supposed to be holding the grain offering of the people. But instead, he finds out that Eliashib, the high priest, has now given one of these rooms to Tobiah the Ammonite for his personal dwelling. He doesn't understand how this could have happened. And if you really look in the scriptures, back in chapter 8, you'll find that Tobiah the Ammonite actually was strongly opposing this wall building. He was one that mocked Nehemiah. He sent a threatening letter, but now he is, here he is, living in the temple. Now, I don't believe this happened all at once, but over time, I believe that he probably befriended Eliashib first. Once he got to be friends with the high priest, he probably needed to store some of his belongings, and he thought, you know what? This one storeroom is empty. Can I bring some of my stuff in? And he brought some of his stuff in, and then over time, he began to bring his furniture in. Before you know it, he was kicking his feet up. This was his own crib in the temple. Yeah, this was a problem. None of the leaders would go back and maybe inspect what was going on, check out the progress, open up one of the doors and say, wait a minute, whose furniture is this? This doesn't belong there. And now he had made this place his apartment. You know, our spiritual journey with the Lord is like white water rafting in a kayak, kayak going upstream. And if you stop paddling, the river is going to automatically take you in the other direction. So when it comes to our spiritual journey, it requires us to remain faithfully working and paddling in the direction that God wants us to go in. There's no such thing as neutral. See, the draw of the world to compromise is like a steady current that will end up taking you far away from the will of God. And here it was, these people had stopped paddling. The leaders were stopped evaluating progress, and now they were miles away from what God had required of them. What is it that you need to evaluate in your own life? What is it that God is saying you need to check up on this particular area? What ministry are you involved in where you haven't really evaluated, but God is saying, take a look at this and see how you might make some improvements? So Nehemiah begins to look at this situation, and he calls it evil. Yeah, he calls this an act of evil. This is not a term that the high priest was used to being associated with. But he doesn't tone it down. He, he sees it and he speaks to it the way it should be spoken of. And that is that this is evil. Jesus does the same thing. He doesn't tone it down. Back in Matthew chapter 23, it's Jesus that called the Pharisees hypocrites. He called them Blind guides and whitewashed tombs. See, sometimes what we do is we see that things are a little bit out of whack, and then what we do is we try to water down the situation to make it seem not so bad. 
so that it becomes palatable, that it becomes acceptable, and then we sort of let it go on. See, leaders honestly evaluate progress. When they see things that are wrong, they begin to address it immediately. Look at verse 8. He says, I was greatly displeased and threw all of Tobiah's household possessions out of the room. I ordered that the rooms be purified, and I had the articles of the house of God restored there, along with the grain offering and frankincense. So obviously the temple of God was dedicated for the worship of God, but now it had been turned into an apartment complex. Nehemiah personally evicts Tobiah. He takes all of the things in that storeroom and he throws it out of the temple. He immediately takes action. He doesn't stand idly by and see what's going on. He begins to then put the grain offering back into its proper place. This leads me to my second point, which is that next level leaders immediately address problems. See, once he sees that there's a problem, he addresses it, and he knows that now some changes need to be made. He begins to do something about it. This is often a painful experience if you've been stuck in this dysfunction and you're learning or doing something uh, the same way all the time, and now you have to address this issue and things have to change. We don't just stand idly by. We all know some kids that sometimes are out of control and their parents may see them doing something wrong, but they don't say anything or do anything, right? Then that becomes a problem. I had little kids come to my house and they become uh, miniature tornadoes in my home. You know, some of you all may have experienced this. And you're looking at the parents like, okay, you, you see what's happening, right? And the parents like, Jeffrey, what are you doing, Jeffrey? And I'm like, wait a minute. You know exactly what Jeffrey's doing. He's tearing up my house, right? You've been through that before. Or maybe you've seen it at a, at a mall or a shopping, you know, a shopping place. You've seen it. The child is out of control, and you can't say anything. They're in an aisle. They're unwrapping stuff off the shelf that they hadn't paid for, and you just look at them, you know. You want to say something, and you want to do something too, but you just stare at them. And then the parent comes on the aisle and says, oh, Jeffrey, what are you doing? You know, you're like, you want to say something with your eyes, though, right? You want to, like, you see, you see what's going on. It bothers you because you want somebody to speak up, somebody to say something. And see, leaders, they don't just see things happen, they make things happen and make things right. Churches that are dysfunctional are churches where they have leaders that see abuse of power and don't speak up, see harassment take place and not say anything, maybe allow inappropriate behavior to take place and then remain quiet. No leaders step in and address the situation. Sometimes it's not related to sin. It could be a process. It could be a system that's not quite working right. Real leaders don't say, well, that's just the way we've always done it. Leaders stop and say, no, let's make some changes. They get involved. When it comes to sin issues, you have to address it immediately. You have to either kill it or run from it, but you can't just sit there and do nothing. 
You've got to address the situation. Look at verse 10. He says, I also found out that because the portions of the Levites had not been given, each of the Levites and the singers performing the service had gone back to his own field. Therefore, I rebuked the officials asking, why has the house of God been neglected? I gathered the Levites and singers together and stationed them at their post. Then all of Judah brought a tenth of the grain, new wine, and fresh oil into the storehouses. The storehouses were empty. The people were no longer giving a tenth of their harvest. And as a result, the Levites, who were supposed to be taking care of the temple duties, now had to go out and work in the field to provide for their families. They were way off track as to what God uh, wanted to be happening. Now the Levites are out in the field. And if you really think about how they have drifted back in chapter 8, you'll find that these were the same people that built a special platform so the priest could stand on and minister the word of God. But now they're out working in the field and nothing's happening in the temple. Nehemiah then reprimands the officials. He begins to then appoint faithful men to collect this offering so that people would now begin to give what belonged to the Lord. When we begin to spiritually drift away from the will of God, I can tell you the first thing that'll happen is that it'll start affecting what you give to the church. That's just the way it happens. See, it's easy for us to then stop giving, withholding that, and then allow things to just go on as normal, thinking that it will not have an impact. Jesus simply says that for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. This is an issue of the heart. Look at verse 15. At that time, I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath. They were also bringing in stores of grain and loading them on donkeys, along with wine, grapes, and figs. All kinds of goods were being brought to Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. So I warned them against selling food on that day. The Tyrians living there were importing fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them on the Sabbath to people of Judah in Jerusalem. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil you are doing? profaning the Sabbath day. The people had previously agreed to obey the laws of Moses, which included that they would keep the Sabbath day holy. That would be a day of rest and a day of worship. But now they're working seven days a week. They look like the rest of the people that lived around them. No doubt they thought they had a good excuse. They probably said to themselves, well, you know what, there's no way that we're going to be able to compete with the rest of these businesses if we close our doors and make this one day holy. Nehemiah then commands that the city gates are shut. He actually puts people right there at the city gate to make sure that on the Sabbath day that no business would be taking place. Now, we're no longer under the strict adherence to the Sabbath law of Israel, but the principles for us to rest and focus on God every day, but even specifically on, on one specific day is something that God has given to us. See, the Sabbath day was given to us, and it's for us. We have to trust 
that the ways of God prioritizing our resources and our time is better. Prioritizing the Lord first. See, next level leaders maintain God's priorities. They maintain God's priorities. See, Satan tried to trick Jesus in the wilderness. Some of you all might know the story. Satan wanted Jesus to begin trusting in something else and that that Jesus would make that thing more important than his relationship with the Father. And Satan's still trying to do the same trick on us, still trying to get us to put our trust in something else and get our priorities out of whack. You know, Chick-fil-A is a fast food restaurant that you all are familiar with. And Chick-fil-A has made the conscious decision to be closed one day a week. That means that they, are, uh, they, they have about 14% less business time to actually make a profit than all the other fast food restaurants. Yet, they are number three in the most profitable fast food companies in America. And that's because they hold fast to their priorities. They believe that there should be one day of rest. See, when we stop trusting in God, we start then compromising in our priorities. And we begin trusting in other things that, are, that we think are more important. We start trusting in our money and our plans and our vitamins and science and all these other things. Now, there's nothing wrong with any of those things I just listed. Science actually can be used in a positive way. It's made our life a lot easier. It's also been used to develop helpful treatments. But our trust should ultimately be in the Lord because it is God that's created all things. And so we go to him and we ask God to help us to make our lives easier. But that doesn't mean that we need to get our priorities out of whack. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 33, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be then added to you. See, God has given us instructions on how we're supposed to live our lives and we trust in God for all the results. We're supposed to just do it with with the way that he's designed it to be done. Next level leaders have their priorities straight. Look at verse 23. In those days, I also saw Jews who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples, but could not speak Hebrew. Nehemiah now discovered that the men had taken these foreign women to be their wives. And this was not supposed to happen because their children were being raised speaking another language. The children could not speak Hebrew, which means the children could not understand the words of God, which means that they would not know who God was. See, this was all about God preserving the relationship with his people. This was all about a relationship with the Lord. The scriptures are clear that God's desire and design was that he would be uh, in relationship with people. And if the children could not speak Hebrew or read the words of God, he knew that that relationship would be broken and they would begin to worship idols. 
We know that because in Deuteronomy, we see exactly what the Lord said when he made this commandment. He says in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 4, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. See, the Lord knew that if there was no way of connecting to him and communicating to him, that there would be a break in the relationship. We find in the New Testament that God does something different, right? He fills the people of God with the Holy Spirit. And once we receive the Holy Spirit, we then are able to communicate and connect to God in a supernatural way. And people of all ethnicities begin receiving the Holy Spirit. And so we see in the New Testament that there is no prohibition against this uh, uh, intermarrying at all. The only thing that we see in the New Testament is 2 Corinthians 6, 14. He says, don't be unevenly yoked with unbelievers. See, God's desire is that we would be in constant communication with him, that we would remain set apart for him. That was the heart behind this in the first place, that we would be set apart for him. The word holy actually means to be set apart. And that's what God wants us to be, holy, set apart for the work that he has for us to do. See, next level leaders demand holiness. They demand holiness. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, he clearly says that offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. God wants us to be in a relationship with him. And so we need to be set apart, living our lives different than the rest of the world. When it comes to holiness, the Lord's people should be really concerned about this and address this head on. Nehemiah does that. Nehemiah is enraged at this issue, and he begins to go at it, immediately making some changes. He rebukes them. Jesus was also angry when he saw that the people were not behaving properly. Some of you all right, might remember that Jesus goes to the temple and he recognized that the Pharisees had now, or the, or the priests had now turned the temple into a marketplace. And look at what Jesus says then. He says, after making a whip of cords, he drove everyone out of the temple with their sheep and oxen. He also poured out the money changers, coins, and overturned the tables. See, before we confront anyone in sin, I think it's important that we check our own heart. That's right. Check our own heart to make sure that our motives are pure. The last thing that we need is self-righteous, moral crusaders that are looking down on others. But God does want us to address situations, but be careful. James chapter 1, verse 19 says to be quick to listen slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the human nature does not accomplish the righteousness of God. That human anger will not do that. So if you're going to enact quality control, you need to be in control, right, before you address situations. The final word of this book is a simple prayer. It's a prayer by Nehemiah found in Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 31. He says this, remember me, my God, with favor. This last chapter, Nehemiah utters four prayers. They're quick prayers. 
And he's praying to God saying, remember me. See, when he begins to rebuke these leaders, he knew that he was putting his life in danger. They could have fought back, but he's not doing this to be people pleasers. He understands that what he's been called to do was an assignment by God. This was not a popularity contest. And he does what's necessary, and he knows that God is watching. So as he does this, he prays, remember me. Next level leaders are accountable to God first. See, they know who they're reporting to. Next level leaders do what is right because they know that the Lord is watching. Living with an awareness of God's presence gives us a sense of courage to sometimes stand alone. Sometimes it seems like everyone else will be against you, but if you know that what you're doing is right, that the Lord will remember you. Some of you might be serving faithfully in ministry, and you might think that nobody's watching, but guess what? God remembers you. God knows that you're doing it. You're doing it for the right reasons. You're doing it from the heart. That's why we serve. God will remember you, not just because of the works that you do, but he remembers you because of your heart. It is an expression of your love to God. God will remember you based on you trusting in him. I know that because there was another prayer that was given to Jesus. And when Jesus was crucified on the cross, he was crucified with two other thieves. There was one thief that mocked him and railed insults at him. But this other thief hung there and said this in Luke chapter 23, 41. We are punished justly because we're getting back what we deserve for things we did. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. As Jesus heard this request, he pushes himself up, gathers enough air in his lungs, and he begins to answer this man's reply. And he says, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. See, the thief knew that he was a sinner. He knew he was in wrong. But he also says to Jesus, I know that you have done nothing wrong. He also recognizes that Jesus owns this paradise or this kingdom. Because he says, remember me when you get into your kingdom. He also recognized that this wasn't the end for Jesus. That Jesus would eventually go to his kingdom. And so once we trust that we are, we are far from God, but Jesus has died on the cross for, for us, we then can ask God to remember us. And he'll walk with us and be with us. He sees us as we do the work that he calls us to do. See, next level leaders do their work because they know that they're following their commanding officer in heaven. They know that God does not forget them. And just like this man that hung on the cross, because he believed, he said, on this day you will be with me in paradise. See, the good news is we serve a risen Savior, one that got up three days with all power. And so we know that we have God that is with us as we walk through life. And we know that in the end, 
we're hoping that God will say to us, well done, my good and faithful servant. Next level leaders are accountable to God first. See, if you've trusted in Jesus, you have not been forgotten. And God will empower you to be the leader that he called you to be. It's going to require some courage. It's going to require some faith. It's going to require you to reprioritize the way you do things. But ultimately, Jesus tells us that we will not be forgotten. Let us pray. Lord, we just thank you, God, for the life of Nehemiah. Because in it, Lord, we see that we have hope. That the work and the labor that we do is not in vain. But everything that we do ultimately will glorify you, God. And you'll be with us all the way to the end. Even to the end of the age. So, God, we ask that you would help us to live out what you want us to live out, God. Help us to be a church that's not just surviving, but thriving. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand on our feet and worship.